0: Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. What do you think of the Holy Spirit? There He was in the primeval world when God first created, and we are told that all was formless and void. There was darkness over the deep, nothing but water everywhere. But even then, we read that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Of course, He was present because the Spirit of God is Himself God, one member of the triune Godhead and no less than the Father or the Son. So in the beginning, whom do we expect to find but the Father and the Son And the Holy Spirit. Is that what you think of the Holy Spirit? One with God. He was there over all things. And when we think of creation, of course, we're often drawn to think of how God created all things by His Word. And that is true. He spoke. Even more so in the New Testament, we learn that the true Word of God is Jesus Christ. And through Christ, all things were made. And that is so. But are you aware that the Spirit was also involved in the work of creation, hovering over formlessness and void? And so the psalmist says, "...by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host." And that is for us a picture of the Holy Spirit. For in Hebrew and in Greek, in the original languages, breath and spirit are exactly the same word. Because God wants you to be aware that when He created this massive world that we live in, all the universe, all the stars, when they were created, it was a work of the Father speaking a word, because Christ was involved by the breath of His mouth, because the Spirit was involved. The Spirit is a mighty creator. And it's fitting that we think of Him this way, because Scripture always presents the Holy Spirit as someone who brings to completion. The work that the Father planned and the Son son brings to pass. The Spirit is there to perfect, to beautify, to fructify, to make alive. That is the Spirit's work. He is sent by the Father and the Son. He proceeds from them and He brings to completion what the Father has begun and the Son has continued. And the Spirit brings it to completion. Is that what you think of the Holy Spirit? Anywhere there is good, there is the Spirit. This was true in a past age, what we read in the Old Testament of the Bible. How was it possible that Israel's judges in a time of great darkness could help that small oppressed nation stand up against the forces of evil around it? How could they do that? Simple men that they were. Because the Spirit of God rushed upon them brought their strength to completion and brought God's purposes to completion in defeating the enemy when Israel repented. The Spirit was involved in the Old Testament, giving skill to the people of God to develop the tabernacle. And if the Spirit was working to bring to perfection among the people of God in the Old Testament, how much more now for you? You upon whom the end of the ages has come. Do you recognize that any good you have ever found in yourself Any good you have ever seen in another believer, any good you have ever seen in a local fellowship of believers, any sense of unity that you have ever felt with other believers that is supernatural, any growth, any strength in fighting against the devil and his temptations, any progress that you have made as a believer, and any progress that you hope to make in your Christian life, this is of the Holy Spirit who not only dwelt upon the formless void earth before God brought it into a land of beauty, but He dwells here. The Spirit is within you. The Spirit is among us, hovering as it were among us, because to be honest, we are still in many ways formless and void. We are still like the primeval earth. There is so much work to be done in bringing to completion, in causing to grow, causing beauty to appear. That is what the Holy Spirit is doing right now, right here. Even in preaching this word to you, this is a word that the Holy Spirit inspired for us. And the Holy Spirit is present. And if you receive a single benefit from anything we talk about this morning, it did not happen apart from the Holy Spirit of God. The Spirit is so active, whether we are always aware of it or not, that when Jesus was here in the body, He told His followers It is to your advantage that I leave. And I'm sure none of Jesus' followers ever think that to be true. (laughs) Why would it be to my advantage that Jesus would leave? He said for this reason, For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send Him to you. Is that what you think of the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is a Helper. The Holy Spirit is right here right now. I know he's invisible. It's easy to forget him. It's easy after the enlightenment of the 1700s to think if you can't see him, is he really there? Is he just the imagination of men's brains? No. He's here. We prayed to him to begin this service. He heard this prayer. He's present with us. He will bring beauty. Through us considering His Word, He will strengthen you when you feel weak, when you feel like you're losing heart, and your knees are weak, and you look at everything that's happening in the world or in your life, and you're losing heart. The Spirit will come in and rush upon you like the judges of old and cause strength. And when the same temptation besets you this coming week, that's beset you for so many of the past weeks, perhaps for years of your life that you feel like throwing in the towel, the Holy Spirit will be there present in power to help you put to death the deeds of the body that you may live. And when you feel like God is so far away, like He doesn't see what's happening in your life, The Spirit is there to be the avenue through which God pours out His love into your heart. And when you have a sense of the love of God for you that motivates, that enlivens, that brightens your eyes, it is by the work of the Holy Spirit. He is present. He is in your life if you are in Christ. He is working. Jesus said, the Father works until now, and I myself am working, and we can add, and the Holy Spirit himself is working until now, still. Otherwise, there would be no hope at all. Your knowledge of the truth, your safety from false teachers, your continuing to live a life of righteousness, not jumping off the deep end as others do, it is all a work of the Holy Spirit. And that's why I'm sure you'll share the sentiment with me that I am glad that we have this opportunity at the end of 1 John chapter 2. Since we started to talk about the work of the Holy Spirit last week, we have an opportunity now to slow down a little bit and focus more on His work in our lives as believers. So let's look at what's said of the Spirit here, this what John calls an anointing you've received from the Holy One. That's the Holy Spirit. Let's see what John says as we continue beginning in verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from Him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as His anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in Him. And now, little children, Abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. 1 John is a book, one of the only books that I've actually preached in the past when we used to do Friday night forum here, and I remember what stood out to me the most when I preached 1 John years ago was it was so much harder than I thought it would be to preach 1 John. And the reason is because his connections are not always obvious. He moves from subject to subject. But what I want to point out here is when we look at these four verses, it at first seems that way, that how are they connected together, especially the last two from the first two? But what I want to point out to you is that in those first two verses, when you come to the end, he says, as the Spirit teaches you, that is what enables you to abide in Christ. And then if you look at verse 28, he says, so abide in Christ. And then he tells you what the consequences will be if you abide in Christ. You won't be ashamed when Christ returns. You will live a holy life. That's what connects these passages together. It's that abiding that's right there at the end, of the first half and at the beginning of the latter half, that connects them together. And I hope you can see that what he's saying in verse 27 is that the way you abide in Christ is as the anointing teaches you. You can't do it without the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's teaching work is what unites you to Christ, abides, helps you to abide in Christ. And it is by abiding in Christ that everything in this passage is fulfilled. I say all of that just to point out that this, for us, will be a passage about the Holy Spirit. The essence here is about the anointing that you've received, and that is clearly the Holy Spirit of God. And what we see then, if this whole passage points us to the Holy Spirit, is that the Holy Spirit performs two significant works in your life, among many others, but there are two in this passage. The first, like we saw last week, is that the Spirit teaches you. And the second is that the Spirit of God protects you. So let's look at these two, how the Spirit teaches you, how the Spirit protects you, and that will be the bulk of our time today. So let's just begin with the first of these. Clearly, last week and in verse 27, the Holy Spirit teaches you if you're in Christ. Notice this, verse 27, but... The anointing, that's the Holy Spirit, the anointing that you received from Him can be the Father or the Son, probably the Son is in view, abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as His anointing, the Holy Spirit, teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, Just as it has taught you, abide in Him. The first thing we have to recognize as we approach this passage is that we are talking about something here that is real. We are not talking like sometimes first-year philosophy students talk <laughs> about concepts that are up in the clouds somewhere. We're not set aside in an ivory tower. What we are talking about, whatever we talk about today in regard to the Holy Spirit is real. If you are a believer, we are talking about a real experience that you have had and ongoingly you have. This isn't invented. It's not made up. We are talking about something real, that aligns with actual reality. The Spirit really is here in this room. He really is working in your life. It's true. I need to reinforce that as we begin, because I probably don't even need to say this, you're probably aware of this, but we are now going on over a hundred years, and really several thousand, but especially in our country, over a hundred years of people believing some unusual things about the Holy Spirit. Since the Azusa Street revival that happened in the early 1900s, the charismatic movement, Pentecostal movement, these things, people have a lot, a lot, even within those movements, just a lot of ideas about the Holy Spirit, who He is, and what He is doing. A lot of ideas. And in the past, you may have had experiences yourself where you've been somewhere where someone is mumbling syllables that don't form actual English words, maybe banana backwards or something, not to tease, but just that you're experiencing that, and then somebody, and then you say, what is that? And they will say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. Is that the Holy Spirit? You may come into another fellowship of believers, and as the music gets ramped up, they're running up and down the aisles, jumping, shouting. It's a little bit of a chaos happening, and Everyone's, and then you may have another group you go to and they're laughing uncontrollably and you say, what's going on here? And they say, well, that's the Holy Spirit. I had a friend who went to a church years ago. He was not a believer. He was not a believer, but he went there and the person playing the piano was very good at playing the piano in this church. And afterward, he went up to the pianist and said, I was so moved by that. And he said, well, that, you know what that was? That was the Holy Spirit. He didn't have the Holy Spirit. He wasn't a believer. So there are a lot of ideas, and this isn't just last hundred years, you know, this is thousands of years within Christianity. There have been so many ideas about who the Holy Spirit is and what He does. What that means for us is you've probably felt the pull away from thinking or talking too much about the Holy Spirit because you don't want to fall into that ditch. But it's easy to fall into the other ditch, which is maybe the greater temptation for you and me here our church is what we call cessationist it does not mean it please hear this it does not mean that we believe the spirit has ceased working no, no we we wouldn't be a church the spirit is active the spirit is working there is one small segment of works of the holy spirit that we believe were unique to the early church those were things like speaking in tongues or certain uh, miraculous gifts that confirm the new revelation given at the time of Jesus through the apostles. We believe that that was unique to the early church. And therefore, we don't speak in tongues. We don't believe someone has a gift where they can heal on demand. God does heal. God does amazing things. So don't misunderstand cessationism. That's, we're just saying that has ceased. <laughs> but being a church that's cessationist, the danger for us then is for us to forget the Holy Spirit's even here. And may God forbid that ever be the case. We depend upon the Holy Spirit. So we don't want to lean away from the Holy Spirit. Therefore, we have a sermon on Him today. That's important. It's sort of like when you get sick eating a certain kind of food, even if the food didn't make you sick. And you know that. Your brain doesn't. And your brain will never let you eat that food again. It will always make you feel nauseous. We cannot treat the subject of the Holy Spirit that way. You may have seen in the past or in family or friends some wrong understandings of the work of the Holy Spirit, but don't let that form in you a nausea toward this subject. This is a beautiful subject, the Holy Spirit of God. We depend upon Him. Now, if we really do depend upon Him, we should be thinking about Him often and talking about the Holy Spirit as well. We'll have a quarterly focus on Him coming up next year. But notice here in our text that John's concern for his little children, as he starts this in verse 26, his concern for them has to do with doctrine. He says there are those who are trying to trick you. They're trying to deceive you. You and I naturally feel a concern similarly for doctrine. We care about it, and we should because it's right there in the text. And then notice what he does is... Right afterward, how can he have a confidence that you'll be protected from false teaching? Because the anointing abides in you and teaches you. So the Holy Spirit goes right side by side with our great love of true doctrine, true biblical teaching. Those, sadly, are often separated by both sides, and should not be. They go together. You may have noticed that in certain churches or denominations, there are logos that are used. Oftentimes, there's a cross. Oftentimes, there's an open Bible. That's what we have in the logo for our church, pages of a Bible. Often, there's an open book representing the Bible, and in certain logos for churches or denominations, you'll see a dove. The dove represents the Holy Spirit. Now, for simplicity, we don't have a dove in our logo, but I want you to know that not having a dove in our logo with the Bible does not mean we don't value the Holy Spirit. I appreciate even the logos that have a picture of the Bible and the dove above it because we know that true doctrine, for us to abide in true teaching, always requires the illuminating teaching work of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what John is talking about in this passage. This is... What we need, the Spirit to teach us. We'll talk about what that looks like, but we need the Spirit to teach us. So first off, just be aware that although there are abuses of this teaching out there, don't go into those, but let us love the teaching of the Holy Spirit. I think what will ultimately protect us as we think about the Holy Spirit teaching us, what will protect us? from going off into some odd view of the Holy Spirit, is the way that we view verse 27 here, especially this line, you have no need that anyone should teach you. If you know anything about the church at large or church history, (laughs) that line makes you uncomfortable, doesn't it? You have no need that anyone should teach you, and especially when added with this next line, his anointing teaches you about everything. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs) Because you are probably aware that throughout the history of Christianity, it is exactly those kinds of words that have been taken by Christian cults, by those who depart from orthodox teaching, by those who wander away from the truth. And they say, we don't need the Bible anymore because we have revelation from the Spirit. Look, it says it. He teaches us about everything. So get out of that dead book, the Bible, and look, we get new revelations from God. It's always been that way. It's always been that way in basically, not been alive that long, so I can't say it definitively, but I'm pretty sure in every generation since the coming of Christ. There have been those who are within Christianity, and then they begin to downplay the Bible, the word we've heard from the beginning, because of a passage like this, which they take all by itself, rip it out of its context, and say, the Spirit teaches us about everything. Therefore, we don't need any teachers. We don't need you to teach us. We don't even need the Bible to teach us. We have the Spirit. Then they get puffed up on visions, dreams, revelations, supposedly from the Spirit. And hence, new cults, new denominations are born. And it happens every generation. If you were to go back to the Reformation, Martin Luther after famously standing his ground on the Word of God at the Diet of Worms, standing against the Holy Roman Empire and the Roman Catholic Church, there he sets his foot. I can do no other, so help me God. He's built upon the Word of God. He goes into hiding, and right as he goes into hiding, back in his hometown of Wittenberg, in come three men whom we call the Zwickau Prophets. And they called themselves Prophets, claimed to have new revelation from the Holy Spirit, and wanted people to follow them. Luther eventually had to come out of hiding and push them out, (laughs) get out of here, push people back into the Word. So it happened then in the 1500s, go 100 years later in England. When you have the Puritan Commonwealth in the 1600s, you had actually a lot of Christian cults like the Ranters or the Muggletonians, Fun to say, not fun to be. These were people who were claiming new revelations. It was always people claiming that the Spirit was teaching them something new. And they would lead people away from what the Bible taught because there is something new. Now, lest you think it's some outdated thing, it's not at all outdated. Even to this day, there are many denominations that are built upon new supposed revelations, the Spirit teaching us new things. Seventh-day Adventism, if you're aware of Seventh-day Adventist Church, was founded by Ellen G. White, who claimed to have more than 2,000 visions and dreams, and these are what she taught her followers, and hence Seventh-day Adventism really had its birth from that. And you could go down the list, it goes on and on. Is that what John means when he says, the Spirit teaches you about everything, it's true, it's not a lie, and you don't need anyone else to teach you anything? What will help you to know that that's not at all what he means is by just not deleting the rest of your Bible. (laughs) We have to use the principle of Scripture interpreting Scripture. Like, for example, let's just start with the most commonsensical thing here, which is John says, and it's true, you don't need anyone to teach you. That's true when John writes that, John is teaching them. Do you understand that? What that means is he can't mean it in an absolute sense. He means it in a true sense, but you can't take it in an absolute sense. You don't need anyone ever to teach you because John himself is teaching them that they don't need anyone to teach them. So it's a contradiction. If you extend out further in Scripture, just take one passage, for example, Ephesians chapter 4, which tells us that Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. If you take our current passage in an absolute sense with no caveats, you don't need any teachers, the Spirit will teach you about everything then Christ really wasted a lot of his time in providing so many teachers in the church. It says he's the one who provided them, teachers to equip the saints. And someone could say to Jesus, well, Jesus, you didn't read 1 John because we don't need teachers. So why provide them? Why go through all the bother of providing teachers? I'm not saying this for job security, I promise you. Christ provided teachers in the church. We should listen to good teachers who are using Scripture I say all this just to argue that these are beautiful, wonderful verses, and just because some people have ripped them out of their context and tried to use them in an absolute way to say, get out of the Bible, don't listen to teachers, just sit in your room and let the Holy Spirit give you dreams and visions, the Spirit teaches you. But notice, when John says the Spirit teaches you, you have to figure out how the Spirit teaches you. It doesn't say through dreams and visions. (laughs) If you bring that to the text, that's what you'll see. The Spirit does teach you, and we 100% believe that to be true, and 100% we believe the cults are wrong. (laughs) I think they've misunderstood this. I mean, just look at this context. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So if we're trying to understand what does he mean, if it's not in an absolute sense, that you don't need anyone to teach you, He's talking about false teachers. The false teachers come in. They actually are probably claiming to have some new knowledge, if they're Gnostics, perhaps even new revelations. Whatever it is, they come in. They have a message. It's contrary to the one that they'd received from the apostles at first. But these new Christians who went out from the fellowship, they say, hey, we've got something new. And you've seen over and over, even a few weeks ago, John is trying to say, don't go over there. It's not new. Stick to what you've had from the beginning. So when he tells them, you don't need anyone to teach you, he's not nullifying his own teaching or teachers in the church or the Bible. Actually, just the opposite. He is pushing people away from these false teachers with supposed new ideas, new revelations, new teachers, new teachings. So I suppose there's a real irony in this because I really think that what John is doing in this passage is trying to protect us against outsiders who claim to have something new from the Spirit. He's saying, don't. The Spirit will keep you away from them. (laughs) It's like he said in verse 24. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. For John, this anointing is not apart from what you heard. He's saying, stay in what you heard. That's this. And the Spirit will help you do it. By teaching you. Don't go away into someone claiming to teach you something new. You don't need them because you have the Spirit. After all, this should be obvious to us in that the Holy Spirit is the one who inspired this. It's inspired by the Holy Spirit's work upon the authors. Why would the Holy Spirit go through the trouble of inspiring Holy Scripture, only then to throw it away and just reveal directly to certain select people new revelations and have us follow them. This is what we heard from the beginning. This is the work of the Spirit. And now in teaching us, the Holy Spirit does not teach us something apart from Scripture. He does not teach us something new that no one's ever heard before. The Holy Spirit's teaching is to what we call illumine or make bright before our eyes what we find in Scripture. The Word, the Dove, The Spirit helps us by pointing us to the truth of Scripture. We do not have to look somewhere else for that. He says the Spirit teaches us about everything. And that is meant to guard you against thinking that here you are every day in the Word, and you're starting to feel a little cold in your heart, and you start to wonder, like, is there more to the Christian life than what I've got going on here? This seems mundane. I go to work. I come home. I raise my kids. Surely there's more. That's what cults often will play on, is that sense of unease, that sense that there should be something more Hollywood-like, more exciting going on. And they say, we can give that to you. Direct revelations from the Spirit, something new. And John is trying to protect you from that. He's saying, listen, listen, no. When teachers come and say they've got something new, you don't need them. You're taught by the Holy Spirit, and He teaches you about everything meaning you don't need something else out there. The Spirit points you to Scripture and keeps your eyes upon the inspired Word. He opens your eyes to what's already there. It's like having a professor who literally wrote the textbook for your subject. That's the best professor to have. He wrote it. The Holy Spirit wrote the Scriptures. He's the best professor to have, illumining our hearts to understand what He wrote. Don't look somewhere else. Don't be carried away when people claim to have new things from the Spirit, revelations and dreams and so forth. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you and we can all rejoice because the Spirit is among us to teach us to do that very thing. So first, the Spirit teaches us. If we understand God's Word, if we're in any way living it out here at Faith Bible Church, It's not because of us. It's the work of the Spirit. First, the Spirit teaches us. Now we move on to the second thing that John says. The Spirit also protects you. I've already mentioned it, but look again at verse 26. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. This whole passage has false teachers in mind. And it's a passage about the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit, in teaching you, thereby protects you from false teachers, even today. He does this in two ways. He protects us from false teaching, and He also protects us from a false lifestyle that false teachers would have us to live. So it's really doctrine and behavior. The Spirit protects us from evil versions of doctrine and behavior. Just think of doctrine first. That's the point in verse 26. I'm writing this to you who are trying to deceive you. That means these are teachers within Christianity who are telling you something different than what you've heard in Scripture. It's different. And they're trying to convince you of it. That's doctrinal error. If it's about essential things, it's doctrinal heresy. They're trying to deceive you. But again, notice how verse 27 begins. But, or... Some of your translations will say, as for you, what John is doing is he's connecting here, false teaching, false doctrine, watch out. He says, but I can breathe a sigh of relief. Because even though you're surrounded by false teaching, I know that you'll be safe and you'll stay in true teaching. How do I know it? Because as for you, they're false teachers, but as for you, you have an anointing from the Holy One. You have the Holy Spirit inside you, teaching you. And that will protect you from turning aside into error. If you think about it, God has created all of us with these physical instincts, you know. It's part of the reason why certain foods, for example, those that taste very bitter or those that taste very sour, do not generally taste as good to us as things that are salty or savory or sweet. Have you ever wondered why that would be? The best that we can make of it is God has put these very instincts into you. You don't even have to learn them. But God has put those instincts into you because often something that's poisonous or dangerous tastes bitter. Or if something has gone bad, we say it's soured. Often something tastes sour when it's gone bad. And God put an instinct in you to help you know by instinct without even thinking about it that if you eat something very bitter or very sour, especially if it's not supposed to be, you're not going to like it. You even have instincts built into your body where if you eat a certain food that your body detects is going to cause you harm, then you want to uneat it, to put it mildly. Those are instincts. Nobody teaches you to do that, and yet your body does it to protect you. When you are born a second time into the family of God, you gain new instincts, spiritual instincts, and one of them has to do with false teaching. Just like when you eat sour, rotten food, you instinctually know, keep away. Similarly, as a Christian, you gain this new spiritual instinct by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches you to protect you against those who are trying to deceive you. Some of you have probably had this experience where you come upon some new teaching or some new church or some new group or some new person who's a so-called Christian, and you come to them and you start talking with them, and something just feels off. Now, you could be wrong, so don't trust your instinct infallibly, okay? Maybe you're wrong. But you've probably also had the experience where something seems off. You can't quite put your finger on it and come to find out it's a heresy. (laughs) They're in some odd false doctrinal teaching or in some cult. That sense that you have that something is off, which is a mixture of you thinking about what they're saying, but it's even beyond that. It is a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, like an instinct within you that's helping you to know, stay away. Don't eat that. That is not good for you. That's why John feels some confidence for his audience. He says, they're trying to deceive you. Notice, trying. They're trying to deceive you, but my confidence for you is you have an anointing that's teaching you that will keep you away from false teaching. So first, the anointing protects you from false doctrine. Secondly, here, in this passage, as we come to the last verses, John also wants you to know that the Holy Spirit protects you from false behavior. Look at this in these last verses. And now, little children, abide in Him. By the Spirit's teaching. So that when He, Jesus, appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He, now it's the Father here, if you know that God the Father is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. Verse 29 there is setting the standard of right behavior. How should you live your life? True teaching we call orthodoxy, but there's also orthopraxy, which is a right way of living your life as a Christian. It's also very important. The way that we are called to live our life day by day is defined in verse 29. It's if you know that God the Father is righteous. Do you know that? Do you know that? Did anyone deny here that God is righteous? Okay, good. We know that He's righteous. He does what is right. He says, well then, if you truly are born of Him, you'll have a family resemblance. Not completely, but characteristically. You will live a righteous life. You may wonder why John says that in verse 29. We've been talking about the anointing, about false teachers. Why throw verse 29 in there about living a righteous life? Because if you follow false teachers and false teaching they will lead you not just away from thinking the right thing, they will lead you into an unrighteous lifestyle. It will happen. Therefore, he wants to guard you not just against false doctrine, but false behavior, and the Spirit does that very thing. There are many odd Christian teachings today where if you get sucked into them, they will urge you to live in sinful anger. Think of a Westboro Baptist Church, for example, or any variety where it's not a true church, but it encourages its members to live in sinful anger, furious at everyone who's the enemy. Whereas Jesus taught, love your enemy. You see how those are different? (laughs) They're not the same, I assure you. If you follow the false teaching of this group, then you are led away into a false sort of lifestyle. The same thing happens with sexual sin. It is not uncommon in Christian cults for there to be not only some weird, odd idea about Jesus or the Holy Spirit, but then if you look at the actual lifestyle of those living in it, if you get to know them, that sexual immorality sometimes is even encouraged or at the least is downplayed. Now, you might think, okay, he wants me to live righteous because God is righteous, and the Spirit helps me to do that, but I'm not being solicited by odd cults away from a righteous lifestyle. That may be true, but all of us feel the pressure of this sort of mild, false idea of Christianity in our culture, which says you can worship God, and you can follow Jesus, and that's all great, but don't be too strict about it. Don't have a high standard of morality. Don't be righteous. That's even an unpleasant tasting word in the culture. Righteous? You care? No. Don't be holier than thou. Don't be righteous. If you are against people having premarital sex, you are puritanical. You are stodgy. And always there's the culture pushing upon us, encouraging in us a kind of Christianity, which is not true but that just lowers the standard of behavior. That just lowers the standard of righteousness. But you see what John says in verse 29? Do you think that God, in the flesh, as Jesus Christ, if he were present here with you, would be sitting with you enjoying that graphically explicit movie or TV show that you're watching? Would you watch it with God sitting by you? (laughs) Because he's there. This isn't to try to make you feel guilty. I'm trying to help you see that John is interested in the Spirit protecting you, not just from false teaching, but the Spirit is in you to protect you from a false way of living, from the culture pulling you into a way of thinking about Christianity where you take it very lax, where, yeah, it's important, but, you know, it's not that important. It doesn't need to change you at work. Keep it at home. Keep it at church. The Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone can protect you from a false way of life, false behavior. He helps you to feel convicted about it so that you stay away from that poisonous behavior, and he teaches you to avoid it. You will encounter other Christians who will think you are puritanical. Don't be puritanical in a bad sense. Don't be legalistic. Don't be crushing. But just because... You believe that things God calls wrong are wrong, and you're willing to hold by that, to believe that God is righteous, and therefore you, born of Him, are striving to live a righteous life. The Holy Spirit protects you from abandoning that when the pressure is intense. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of God. By the Holy Spirit, I may add, you're born of God by the Spirit, and He helps you to live a right life. As we conclude now, I want you to know that the work of the Spirit here among us, teaching us and protecting us, has this as its final goal. Verse 28, and now little children abide in Christ so that when Christ appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from Him in shame at His coming. Like the presence of the Spirit, the return of Jesus Christ to this earth in His body, though it's invisible because it hasn't happened yet, it is real. It's a real thing that's going to happen. And let me ask you, which of these groups do you want to be in when He returns? Do you want to be in the group of persons who see Him coming, feel immediate regret about everything in your life, and He says, shrink back in shame? What have I done? I didn't keep my candle lit. I wasn't ready for his return. You want that to be your life? That's what the Holy Spirit is trying to protect you from. Sometimes the work of the Spirit is painful as he's rooting out, as he's putting to death things that are inside you. It hurts But it is loving and gracious. He is trying to prepare you for the return of Christ. He is trying to have you live such a life where you're holding to the truth of God's Word. You've not been moved into something weird. You're holding fast to it. Your life's being changed. You're living according to true doctrine and true behavior so that you can live your life even now, not with a sense of shame, but with open expectation for Christ's return. The word there in the Greek, parousia, confidence, that is your goal as a Christian, and nothing less than that. Confidence that you are abiding so deeply in Christ that you just can't wait for Him to come back. Don't you want to live that way? Well, then abide by the teaching of the Holy Spirit. Let Him work in you. Let Him protect you. Let Him lead you. Walk in step with the Holy Spirit, and little children abide in Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit among us. Let's pray. Christ, thank you that you have given us of your Spirit so that the way we talk this morning. In considering these verses, the way we talk about having confidence when you appear, it's not a fairy tale, it's not imagined, it's a real goal that we have, that we will be found in you on that last day as true and genuine believers, and not just as true believers, but as those who have invested our minas well and made a return, as those who are not slothful, who are not distracted or led away from our first love not those who've turned aside from Christ to other interests, but as those who have devoted their entire lives by the power of the Spirit to you. Help us, Lord, not to live a double life, but just one life, one life that is completely yours, one life that is devoted to believing what is true and to living out what is true. And help our way to be like the way of the righteous that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. I pray your spirit would continue its work among us individually, that your spirit would work in us as a fellowship of believers, that we would not stagnate, that we would not be stuck in a plateau, but that we would make real progress in our unity together with each other, in our love for you, in our understanding and perception of your glory. In our activity, in our energy, in our zeal, our enthusiasm, in real change away from vice into virtue, in holiness, in righteousness of life, in genuine affection for each other, in true sorrow over the state of those who are perishing, an action to remedy it, in our consistency in your word and in prayer. Lord, I plead with you. We desire all these things and cannot be satisfied with less than them, so we are requesting that You would grant us greatly of Your Spirit to work in us, to bring about in us what we cannot bring about in ourselves for the sake of Your greatness.